Before the show starts, I want to make an appeal to all you listeners that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon. Not only will you help this podcast continue to move forward, you will now get a little something in return. You will join the table of ranks of the SRB empire. For a monthly contribution of $1 to $4, you'll be given the rank of Collegiate Registrar and receive an SRB podcast refrigerator magnet. For $5 to $9, you'll be named Collegiate Secretary and get an SRB podcast shot glass and all the privileges of lower ranks. For $10 to $24, you'll become a Collegiate Counselor and will receive a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press and all the privileges of lower ranks. And for $25 or more, you'll be anointed a Chancellor and will be sent a set of four SRB podcast shot glasses and all the privileges of lower ranks. Join the table of ranks and help me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else by clicking on the Patreon button on seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get started today, I want to make a request to all my listeners who use or are thinking of using the podcast for their courses. If you're one of those, could you please drop me a line via email, Facebook, or through the podcast website with your course and the institution you're teaching at? Also, if you can give me a sense of how you're using the podcast and students' reactions. This information will be quite helpful for potential funding. Thanks. What is custom, and what does it mean to do something according to custom, especially to settle disputes or regulate behavior? How does customary law mesh with civic and religious law? Namely, what gives custom its power? Judith Baer takes up these questions in her new fascinating book on the role of custom, elder courts, authority, and respect, and ritual in everyday life in Kyrgyzstan. Judith Baer is professor of anthropology at the University of Constance, Germany, where she focuses on the anthropology of the state, legal pluralism, and theories of social order in Central Asia and Southeast Asia. She's the author of The Force of Custom, Law and the Ordering of Everyday Life in Kyrgyzstan, published by Pittsburgh University Press. Here's Judith Baer. Your book, The The Force of Custom, Law and the Ordering of Everyday Life in Kyrgyzstan, is a really interesting and I would say quite intimate look at the role of custom and law in everyday life in that country. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about what inspired you to do this study. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to do a PhD in uh, anthropology and had been to Kyrgyzstan several times before my actual fieldwork. Uh, I studied in the capital, Bishkek, for six months uh, in the year 2003, um, studied law and anthropology and learned Kyrgyz. And um, I think it was around that time that I encountered for the first time the so-called Aksakal courts, which you could translate as the courts of elders. Literally, it's the courts of the white beards. And I was intrigued by that institution. There was nothing written 
on that institution, but everyone knew who they were and what they were doing. And there was this particularly outrageous case of stoning, apparently, in Talas province, which is the smallest province in Kyrgyzstan and um, located in the northwest. So um, I wanted to find out more about these courts and, and what kind of law they were applying. And this was basically the start of... Um, of my fieldwork and then during during fieldwork which took place between 2005 and 2006 so i was in the country for 15 months on end i came to broaden the scope of my research so i started out with um, investigating the Aksakal courts um, in these two rural villages where i where i lived and and where i where i carried out my fieldwork but um, i had not envisioned at that time to do a study on the force of custom. So the scope of the research broadened throughout fieldwork, as it mostly does uh, in anthropology. And um, the Aksakal courts are still part of the book, but they're not so much in the center as um, they were when I set out to do the research. So I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I, I found it striking, I, I haven't read a lot of anthropological work, but most of the anthropological work I've read always talks about how at least there's a mention of anonymizing informants for a variety of reasons. And I found it interesting in right in the beginning of the books, you, you state that you chose not to do this. You chose to keep the, the real names of your informants. And in fact, you state that your informants actually requested you keep their names because they saw they see your study as part of their village history. So it, talk about your informants, the type of people that you engaged, your decision to name them, and how they understood what you were doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware that it's, it's uh, still quite an unusual decision. And it was a decision I carefully thought about for a long time. The book is the third book, which centers on these particularly two villages in, in Talas. Um, the first book I did was a photo ethnography which I published right after having come back from, from fieldwork. So it came out in 2007 because I wanted to give back a type of publication which I knew would be of importance and would be considered valuable by my informants who at that time, for example, didn't have access to a lot of photographs of themselves, which is something unimaginable in 2017, right? So 10 years later. But it, it was the case in, in 2007. So I, I made this book which is full of photographs of of these two villages and, and of people, and it gives uh, an ethnographic account of their everyday life. And I brought this book to my host families, the people I lived with, all the people I worked with, their copies in the local libraries and in the schools. And um, people were very, very happy to, to have that type of publication. So they, they were proudly showing it off to visitors and state officials who came by and so on. And then I did a second small publication together with my research assistant at the time, which is basically the oral history of my main uh, informant, Baizapa, who is 90 years by now. And it's her story of growing up in Soviet times, raising eight children as a single mother, working in the Kolkhoz, having been a devout Muslim for over 50 years, so throughout the Soviet time, refusing to learn Russian or speak Russian and managing her household and, and being a very important and central figure in, in the village. And I brought that book also back in 2010. And I brought, I think, 50 or 100 copies, 100 copies to the two villages, which I used um, as part of the local history courses. So basically, there are school children now who read 
the story of Bai Sapa learning about what life in their own village was like decades ago. And um, so this was quite important for me to kind of reciprocate in a way because of all the help I had received during my fieldwork. And I knew that the third book would be a more theoretical piece, something which would be more difficult to relate to maybe. But for them as well, you know, the book which which is now out belongs to them because it wouldn't be there without without them. Yeah. And um, so in relation to that, I decided, well, you know, Central Asian Studies is a very small field. So basically all of my colleagues know where I was, what the villages were like. Some of them visited me during field site. So we all know of each other's work anyway. So it would be easy for them to figure out where I was. And then Kyrgyzstan is a very small country with 5.5 million people, uh, which doesn't mean everyone knows everyone else, but it's quite easy to find out if you want to. And um, so I decided I'll use the names and I asked them, of course, whether it's fine with them. And they said, yes, of course, you know, this is our this is our book as well. What I didn't do was to use their full names. So I addressed them in the way I'm, I'm supposed to address them. So instead of saying a person's full name, using the familiar name as well, um, I, I addressed them, for example, as Bais Apa, so Grandmother Bais. So I, I don't mention the names as they're written in their ID documents, for example, but it's always the polite form, you know, in, in Kyrgyzstan, you, you address older people with the additional name Appa for mother or grandmother, Atta for father and grandfather and so on. So these are the names I'm using. And there are very few exceptions, especially when it comes to politicians who were not part of the village. In these cases, the, I either didn't use the names at all or I anonymized them. But everyone who lives in the village is in there with their own name. So... And it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm really interested in how their interest in their village history. I mean, you have a portion of the book where a lot of people have, of course, moved out of the village and they're, 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 there's an expectation of them to come back at certain points for certain certain celebrations. And is there a sense of this this idea that it, it seems to me at least that wanting to have your book and seeing your study as part of their village history is that they have a very strong consciousness of the history of their village that they want to preserve. Um, can you talk about that possibility a bit? Well, I think it's an empirical question and it will depend on what they might do with this book. You know, I mean, I still have to bring the book I still have to bring the book there, so it's not in the village yet. Um, I was planning to do it this uh, June, but I would probably have to postpone it. But um, if I go, I'll bring my family, I'll bring a lot of these books, and then I'll distribute them like I did the other two. But what happens then, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm sure most of my extended host family, they will read it, especially because they are children now who can read English very well. I'm also playing with the thought of at least translating part of the book into Kyrgyz, um, especially the ethnographic bits, because the book is written in English. You know, So for the village population, it's not necessarily accessible. So this is something I'm, I'm, um, I'm thinking about, uh, something I would like to do very much, something which is also not, not really common in anthropology, unfortunately. Yeah, to me, it would be important. But as I said, how, how they will use the book, you know, if they... If they will read about, if they if they will read it, if they will um, talk about it, if it's going to be to put to use in order to make claims about their history, this is this is something I don't know. 
your work focuses, or at least this study focuses on the notion of according to salt. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, which is, which is salt, 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 salt. (laughs) 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 which can be, which can be translated according to custom. So what is salt? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I should start by by saying what it's not. Salt is not a thing. Salt is not an entity. Salt is nothing you would be able to write down in a book and then you have it. There are different ways of how I go about it. For me, I understand it as a way of conduct. It's definitely an emic concept. Um, I look at it from the perspective of how people order their everyday life by invoking salt. So it is a performative idiom in which actors, my informants, choose to speak, how they make claims about certain situations where they, for example, have to rationalize a certain type of behavior. So I use it in the context of legal repertoire, yeah, because I'm, I'm coming from a legal anthropological background Um, I have a training in in legal pluralism, especially. So I've always been interested at the entanglement of different legal repertoires. And usually you would look at state law, at Islamic law, for example, in the context of um, uh, Central Asia and at customary law. So there's this usually the entanglement of three different repertoires you consider in a legal pluralistic situation. And um, in the beginning, I thought of SALT as customary law and then chose to to translate it as custom, which was a difficult decision to make because custom is not a neutral term in anthropology. It comes with a lot of historical baggage. Clifford Dietz has, for example, said that um, mischief was done to the term by reducing thought to habit, you know, because when you think of custom, um, you usually think of a habitual type of behavior, something you don't really reflect upon, something people have always done. And this is this is not what it is, but this is how it gets invoked in conversations. So people would make this claim that something is according to salt in order to basically give a rationalization for their own type of behavior. Yeah. As soon as you say something is according to salt, you're taking yourself out of a certain responsibility because you cannot act differently because salt makes you do it. And in the book, I'm tracing all of these metaphors people use, also metaphors related to people's bodies, where they try to show how much of a force it really is. For example, they would say salt is in our blood. They would say salt swallows other types of law, for example, state law. Yeah, Salt is stronger than the other types, so it swallows it, jutu, you would say in Kyrgyz. Yeah? So they use these bodily metaphors in order to describe what kind of force salt really has. So it's a concept that takes agency away from actors and puts them in a position of dependency. You know, it's it's basically you could say it's it's this repertoire, it's it's um it's our tradition, our custom, our culture that makes us do this, which is a very well, if you t- look at it from an analytical perspective, you would say that's a very conservative way of going about it. But if you look at it from an emic perspective, how it's being used in interactions, how people rationalize others and their own behavior, it becomes this very fluid processual concept. And this is something I was really interested in. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that it, it overlaps and intertwines and, and deviates with 
other forms of law in Kyrgyzstan, particularly religious and, and civic law? How, how do these things go together and mesh and then depart? Taking the example of the Aksakal courts, which I mentioned in, in the very beginning, basically as a part of Kyrgyz nation building, the Aksakal courts came into existence in the early 90s. So um, a few years after the Soviet Union was dissolved. And they are established now in all villages throughout the country. There is um, special mention of this institution in the constitution of the country. They have their own separate law and several other regulations. And the law basically stipulates that Aksakal courts should judge according to the custom and tradition of the Kyrgyz, without specifying what that exactly means. And so these courts were established throughout the country, and they were part of official state law. But at the same time, I noticed that cases that until then had been looked at in state courts tended to get sent back to the countryside from then onwards, because so-called minor issues, um, the theft of livestock, for example, violence in the village due to alcoholism, these things, they kind of uh, crowded the, the, the city courts or, or the lower state courts. And now since the Aksakal courts were there, the judges tended to send them back to the countryside. So there was a lot of casework to be done by Aksakals who in former times had positions in the courthouses, but all had no formal legal training. And they weren't supposed to have that training because they were supposed to judge according to custom and tradition, right? In the eyes of these Aksakals, however, they imagined that they are now a sort of state judge. And so they were imagining the state and imagining what state judges would do in their case. So there already you have an intertwining of state law and, and um, so-called customary law, whereas the Aksakals, who were envisioned as the embodiment of knowledge about custom and tradition, understood the institution in a completely different way. So in, in especially in the beginning, so in the 90s, but also in the early 2000s, there were lots of dispute cases going on about this institution. There was severe criticism from human rights institutions, for example. But then during the time of my fieldwork, there were actually more trainings carried out, for example, by the UN uh, and other uh, non-governmental organizations, training Aksakals in doing the type of work. And uh, this was something I was interested in because I noticed that when these trainings were carried out, the Aksakals would behave in a very different way compared to what they were doing when they were judging on cases in the countryside. So there you had this intertwinement of, of state law and customary law, so to say, with lots of complications. And then there is Islamic law or Sharia, which has always been intertwined with custom. Yeah, this is one of the one of the problems that a lot of the early Russian sources did not understand or had to grapple with. Yeah, the fact that you could not separate people's understanding of Sharia from custom or customary law. A person would even be able to explain a certain thing in terms of Sharia and explain the same thing in a different situation in terms of custom. Um, there are lots of publications on how these two legal repertoires are intertwined. And in my field, in my field research, I, I try to trace 
this intertwinement more than trying to disentangle it because the strength really comes from the fact that you can't. They belong together and people use them differently according to context and situation and who else is there um, in a certain dispute situation, for example. So in a, in a mosque, for example, if you have a dispute settlement going on in a mosque, you would find much more frequent invocations of Sharia, whereas in the Aksakal courts, um, Sharia did not have a place in legitimizing certain decisions, although this is slowly changing. So I noticed a change in the last two or three years with Aksakals now invoking Sharia more than they did a couple of years earlier. So these these repertoires are always um, in flux. Uh, they're always corresponding to each other. And, and the important thing to, to understand is that you cannot understand these repertoires without looking at concrete situations and contexts um, and then try to follow how, how do people use them in specific interactions. You know, what, do get, what do they get out of invoking Sharia in this case instead of invoking custom, for example? Right. In this sense, the, the, the way a case is narrativized in the court setting kind of determines where it intersects with these various repertoires. I would imagine. Yeah. It's interesting that these Axical courts were established in 1993, you said. And is there a, is this, are these courts part of a previous historical legacy? Because what they, what they remind me of, of course, knowing the Russian situation more is the, um, the Nrodny Sud, the people's courts that were developed in the late, the latter half of the 19th century. And then the, these comrade courts that existed for a short period of time. Uh, short, existed in the Soviet period. So is there a, a, a historical lineage of these local uh, customary law courts or, or people's courts, for the lack of a better term? If you ask the political elite, or especially uh, the former president, uh, Askar Akayev of Kyrgyzstan, who was the one uh, who came up with the idea, he would have he said yes. Uh, he, he was arguing that these courts have always existed in the history of Kyrgyzstan, and what he is doing is simply to revitalize them. And in the book, I, I show how these different concepts of revitalization and reinvention, basically, are also being used by different actors for different purposes. So my perspective is that there have been these other institutions, the ones you mentioned, the, the Narodny Sud and the, the Comrades Court, but you can't really directly compare them to the institutions you have in the Kyrgyz countryside nowadays for several reasons. The first is that the way the law has been set up is differently from the laws which were in place during Soviet times. Always had elders judging cases or trying to reconcile disputes, but you never had an institution which was incorporated as part of state law, yet at the same time was um, supposed to judge according to custom. So the other courts, they were also part of the Soviet system, but the invocation of custom, the way it is done in, in the Aksakal courts, is, is different. So I would not directly compare them. I mentioned that these these existed. So the, the principle which basically can be said to have a tradition is that of the the, the elder. Whereas the, the comrade courts and also the Narodny Sud, they they necessarily did not have to be staffed by elders, whereas the Aksaka court is usually staffed by old men. I mean I have cases, especially in, in Bishkek, where you also have Aksaka courts, 
where there's one Aksakal court, for example, stuffed uh, only with women. But Bishkek is a, is, is a special case. So in the countryside, it's it's very often the epitome of the wise elders. So it's older, uh, old, bearded men who kind of fulfill the expectation that these are the ones who know best about the customs and traditions. So, and this is different from the other two institutions. Are the Aksakal courts, as they were placed in the constitution uh, and in terms of the the you know newly independent state of Kyrgyzstan, is it also part of a nation building and national identity building project as well? Yes, definitely. I mean, this was this was definitely the reason why why Askar Akhaev came up with them. It was part of the nation building process in Kyrgyzstan alongside a lot of other inventions of tradition basically he, he came up with yeah the revitalization of of manas uh, as a national identity figure the national holidays which uh, which we now know i mean kyrgyzstan has a lot of a lot of different national holidays compared to to um to previous times so it was part of the nation building process part of the rationale of finding something that is typically kyrgyz so Russian presence in in Kyrgyzstan uh, occurs rather late, if I uh, remember my imperial history correctly, really into the 1890s or so. So talk about the role of the Russian presence in making, and then of course the un, and then the Soviet, a bit about the Soviet legacy, and how Soviet life is unmade in villages uh, like Aral and Engels. From my field side, I know that the first date that people remembered Russians entering the the particular valley where the villages I, I worked in are located is in 1904. And there was settling of, of Russian peasants in 1912. And with, with these settlers came, for example, potatoes and apples and chicken. And um, a lot of things changed. People were transhumans, so they were they were moving with their animals um, from the winter encampments down in the valleys up to the to the summer pastures, the Jailo, regularly until the 1930s, when you have this yeah, wave of forced sedentarization. And in this context, you have the establishing of the villages as they are now. And what, what I do in the book is to trace basically these different these different waves of putting people together in, 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 in villages who had until that time been rather mobile and how the village was being set up with people's wishes realized that those who had herded together, those who had um, stayed together as families on the, on the pastures would be able to live together in the newly built villages. And so the, the, the role of descent, basically, our genealogical connection is something which was important throughout the Soviet time, even during the Kohos system. And it showed itself to be, again, very important after the dismantling of the of the Kohoses uh, in independence. So what I'm doing is I'm tracing how basically move people moved together or were being moved together forcefully in the 1930s, how the Kohos life looked like, what modes of production people knew and... Um, what what the area also was important for in terms of uh, animal herding and so on, but then how how the Kohos was dismantled following the logic of descent. So how people separated everything which had been common, uh, common property, common commonly owned animals, according to uru, which is which is the local term for lineage. 
So the principle of, of genealogy, of descent and, and of, of coming from the same lineage has remained important throughout the whole Soviet time and, and proved itself to be very important in the dismantling of the Kohos. So this is something I found out during field work. And well, the, the interesting influence now is that during the time of my fieldwork, there was almost no labor migration to Russia, for example, whereas in other parts of Kyrgyzstan, especially in the south, in the Fergana Valley, there had been already lots of labor migration. So when I did fieldwork, a lot of people were living in the village. Some of them worked in the capital in Bishkek, but there was almost no out-migration outside of Kyrgyzstan, whereas now all of the families have especially their youth working in Russia. And um, a lot of the remittances come from Russia. So there's now, a, again, a new connection, basically, to, to, to Russia in terms of um, economic dependency. But, yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a new development. You opened one of your chapters, and I was really struck by the quote you use from one of your re respondents for your chapter on imagining the state. And the quote is, we don't have a state here anymore. And I found this really interesting because it suggests a couple of things. First is that there was a state before uh, and now it's gone. So how do your informants understand the Kyrgyz state? And, and what is the meaning of this statement that the state, we don't have a state here anymore? Mm. I mean, this is also a statement with, which you have to kind of understand in the context of, of the fieldwork I did. So 10 years ago, basically, I'm not so sure that people would still argue similarly now um, because of a lot of changes that had happened. But at the time of my fieldwork, there was a sense of frustration by the average villager, but also by the local administrative staff. So state officials, basically, who received their salaries from, from the capital, who were supposed to work for the state. So there was this sense of disillusionment that they've been left to their own devices, that they were urged to get in third-party funding from the World Bank, for example, if they wanted to have their water pipes repaired or if they wanted to have constant electricity or if they wanted to have the road being repaired, which at the time of my fieldwork was crucial because um, in this part of, of Kyrgyzstan, um, especially in hard winter times, uh, you'd be isolated from the rest of the country. So there were all of these concerns that there's a lack of a caring state, basically, which people at least imagined to have been there during Soviet times. So they would recall the, the positive image of the Soviet system, the social security, which was there. And they would idealize the system in a, in a way of saying, well, all of this is not happening anymore. We're left to our own devices. And the Aksaka courts as well, they were, they were viewed in this light, you know, so we even have to kind of tie our own criminals um, the state does not take any interest in the countryside. So it's the people in Bishkek, yeah, so far away, who do their thing, but they don't know what's going on in the countryside and they don't care. And um, so during fieldwork, there was, for example, no policeman uh, in the village. There was a mayor and a secretary, and very, very rarely you would have a politician coming from the regional uh, capital, Talas, to to do some administrative work. but So there was the sense of, of being left to their own devices. But then there was also the sense of, okay, but we, we don't need the state. You know? So the, the important thing in, in the book, which I try to show is that people, I mean, Talas people, they're kind of, uh, they have a reputation for being proud. 
And they were playing with this a lot and they're saying, okay, we don't, we don't need a state. Um, we can do everything by our own. If we want to have the road repaired, we will get the money from the World Bank and have it repaired. We will kind of address our relatives in, in Bishkek to send us money. And so there was this sense of self-sufficiency somehow, but it came out of, um, out of a feeling of being isolated and, and uh, neglected. Talk a bit about um, the role, a bit more about the role of elders, because elders do play this incredibly important role in regulating and adjudicating various disputes uh, based on customary law and, and also to some extent civic law. And talk about their relationship within the village, but also how do politicians and state administrators play in all of this? Well, to say that elders play an important role in terms of adjudicating according to SALT is basically taking up the emic perspective, right? This is something that people would say. So you have the image of the elder as being the epitome of, of uh, knowledge about tradition and custom, which does not necessarily mean that this is the case, but they're being stylized in a way that they are the ones who are supposed to be in charge when it comes to these issues. And in this chapter on authority in, in the book, I'm, I'm discussing how, how this image comes to be about. It's, it's an idealized image. And um, so being an elder, um, as I understand it, is not something that simply is, but something these elders need to actively work on. So there's a lot of performance involved. So I use the concept from ethnomethodology, which is a particular type of, of interactional analysis where I say you are not an elder, but you need to do being an elder. So what are the performances that elders have to carry out in order to be recognized by an audience as this axakal, as this wise person? And in the book, I, I mention several examples of how how this um, goes about. Yeah? So there's a certain way of conduct, which is being associated with um, being an Aksakala, also being a wise old woman to whom you would go for blessings or asking advice and so on. So um, this is something that elders have to constantly engage in. And related to your question on um, what role politicians play, I have this chapter on, on what I call buying and paying respect. So um, there you have the interaction between elders, mostly male elders, not exclusively, but mostly male elders and politicians. And I explain that when politicians invite Aksakals, as it is happening, for example, during Veterans Day, elders feel obliged to follow these invitations because the state official is someone who is considered to be in a higher position, of course. Anyone coming from the state is someone villagers would need to respect, independent of what they think of this person. So they are obliged to follow this invitation. But what happens during these events is not simply that elders are then congratulated that they receive presents, but they're also giving speeches. So they're getting an audience in front of whom they can perform their, their axakalness, basically. So I'm looking at um, authority as this interactive process between, in this case, axakals and politicians, who exchange respect, but who also demand respect from each other. And the reason why politicians engage with Aksakals in this way is that the Aksakal as this idealized image of a wise elder is as far away from politics as you can imagine, right? So he, he, the person is untainted by all of the things associated with politics, not only in Kyrgyzstan, but also in Kyrgyzstan, which is mostly being corrupted, 
not saying the truth and so on. So being an elder and performing as an elder is an unpolitical act at first sight, which the politicians can buy into. So basically they have elders performing in, before they have their own speech. And uh, in doing so, they, they kind of lift their own personality and, and their own, in the end, political um, project into a realm which is then associated with being an Aksakal. So they can purify their own political agenda by having Aksakals perform for them. And for the Aksakals, on the other hand, it means that they're given a stage. Sometimes it's mediatized, so they would appear in the local newspapers, they would appear even on television or on radio. Um, and this, on their side, raises their role and their respect as well. So there, there's this interaction going on in, in terms of um, respect and authority, which I thought was really interesting. You mentioned earlier about salt being seen as, you know, using a lot of these bodily metaphors, like it's in our blood. Talk about the ways in which it's reproduced and communicated within uh, the village beyond generations, spanning generation, a generation. Uh, what role do these courts play in these various performance, performances of the elder? Maybe to get away a bit from, from the Aksaka court, which is basically only one institution where you can observe salt being played out as as this um as this way of conduct another example which which i um look at in my book is um how certain life cycle rituals are carried out and i have this one chapter on funeral rituals or mortuary rituals uh, in general which for me was really the occasion to see all the different types of legal repertoires in action and to see everyone from very young daughters-in-law up to elders, but also the imams, so the, the Muslim clergy and state officials in the capital engaging in the, in the discussion of whether the way mortuary rituals are carried out in Kyrgyzstan, also particularly in Talas, where I did research, are according to custom or are in line with uh, the demands of Sharia or are in line with state law or against. So it's a very complicated procedure, but basically um, what happens is that during mortuary rituals, gift exchange takes place in uh, very elaborate forms involving um, a lot of different uh, people, relatives, as well as non-relatives. And why is this a problem? Why is this not only a private affair, one could ask? Well, because the amount of, of items that are exchanged or, or given and taken are very costly in the end that people indebt themselves. So not only in terms of the family who has to invite guests when a relative of theirs has died, but also when you're invited as a guest and are expected to bring certain things. It centers around the giving and taking of carpets. And I trace the history of, of why giving carpets is, um, is something which people do and tell us. But um, basically, so there's conspicuous consumption going on, you can say, right? There is a destruction of economic wealth. Uh, people complain about um, their own behavior and the expectations of others. But um, there's also the sense that it's, it's getting worse instead of better. And um, you can trace also in the historical documents that, that these types of exchanges have been going on in previous times, that during Soviet times there were stricter prohibitions, but people would still carry them out in, in their households um, with the officials knowing, because officials always were also relatives 
um, to some people and someone who's working in the administration would also be the daughter or daughter-in-law um, of someone, right? So there's no way any person in Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan could uh, stay out of these obligations completely. But so what I'm doing is I'm tracing the different rationalizations, trying to see how state officials try to fight these irrational customs as they themselves declare um, them to be, uh, what the role of the Islamic clergy is, for example, um, and then the, the problems which, which people in the countryside encounter when they try to stop some of this behavior or carry on with it no matter whether they like it or not. So this is one of the instances where where the invocation of this is according to custom, this is what we have to do. We don't have any choice, you know. This is the this is the occasion where it came out most forcefully. And finally, you end your book with a discussion of post-socialism, which is, you know, a big topic, not just in in anthropology, but also in, as you note, in political science and other social scientific disciplines. What are your reflections on the the concept and the the issue of post-socialism in light of your study of custom? I made a deliberate decision not to start my book with after the breakdown of the Soviet Union or so-and-so years after the Soviet Union has been dissolved and so on, because I noticed that this is a very typical way of, of phrasing the beginning of a lot of books on Central Asia. And um, I did not want to do this because although having read a lot about the dissolution of the Soviet Union and, and of course, knowing the, the, the impact this has had, it was nothing which um, people in my field side would constantly emphasize. It was nothing which for them was, for example, more traumatic compared to the to the sudden forced solidarization in the 1930s. So if there had been an event which for them was was really traumatic and crucial, then this was the forced sedentarization in the 1930s. This is something they would they would mention a lot more often. And I thought that was interesting because it seemed to contradict a lot of the way other studies had been set up. And um, the argument I'm making is that the concept of post-socialism, as useful as it might be in a lot of other contexts, is not something which should guide the way I was going about the argument I was making. It was not central to understanding everyday life in this particular part of Kyrgyzstan. And I noticed also that in the literature, there has been this discussion whether it's really something we still need. But instead of um, instead of kind of looking at alternative ways of conceptualizing society, there are all these other terms which have been coined, like post-post-socialism, for example, or global socialism, or post-Cold War. And um, I'm criticizing these terms because, in my opinion, they, they move the discussion to yet more abstract levels. So we're, we're not getting any closer to understanding how people themselves perceive of their life and how it has changed. And um, yeah, so the book is basically about their perspective. But it's not only a, a book which um, which is written from an emic standpoint. It's it's a book that tries to understand how people themselves uh, themselves rationalize their behavior, how they order their everyday life, um, what kind of theoretical models or methodological tools they use themselves in order to make their life and all of the changes they've encountered in the last decades more understandable. So from an ethnomethological perspective, this is 
this is what I was really interested in. So not in an abstract concept under which I could then subsume the, the activities which I, which I witnessed and in which I participated, but to understand how do they themselves rationalize uh, social and economic and political and cultural change. That was Judith Baer, professor of anthropology at the University of Constance, Germany, and author of The Force of Custom, Law and the Ordering of Everyday Life in Kyrgyzstan, published by Pittsburgh University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.